As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. There's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Colin Moriarty, current Chief Creative Officer at Lilymo Games and founder of Colin's Last Stand. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by Colin Moriarty. How are you? I'm hanging in there. It's the weekend and I have a lot of things to do, but it's uh, good to be here. Thank you for having me. And that makes me appreciate the fact that you've come on the show even more. It's, um, we've been back and forth for a little while now to try and work out a time and a place to make this happen. So I really appreciate that if you've got a busy weekend, you've been able to carve out a little bit of time for me. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, no problem. A lot of the busyness is coming. I bought a house a couple of, of months ago and it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of house for one person. So I'm trying to like just keep up with it and do things to it. And and then combining that with uh, Colin's last stand and then combining that with Lily Mo, I just I have my plates pretty much maximally full at this point. Yeah, I mean, those, those things alone are kind of crazy. And then, yeah, you add moving, moving home or buying a new home into the mix and it just blows everything up. I, we did the same thing about a year ago here and I still, I feel like we're still picking up the pieces slowly from that move. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's the first time I've ever owned a house, and now lived in an apartment. And uh, yeah, it's an, it's just an incredible heavy lift for one person, especially. But it's a blessing. It could be way worse. But yeah, oh, that's yeah. what I try to. That's what I try to do. You know, I try to do a little bit every day. So that's what's going on. Exactly, and then you add the the current world situation on top of all of it, and it's and things never seem to be just as easy as you'd like them to be. No, never. And I also don't really have great capability when it comes to handiness, which is weird. My dad's a very handy person, loves cars, old cars, collected them, and New York City yeah. firefighter, and builds things and woodworks and stuff. And I don't know anything. I just didn't pay attention at all. He tried, and I wish now that I that I need some of these skills that I listened, but it wasn't so. Yeah, I'm a little bit the same as you there. I'm pretty hopeless. <laughs> So this is Dev Darius. Usually we talk to people in development from all around the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and basically the journey that led up to this current point. Now, Colin, you, um, a lot of people know you for work outside of actual the game development scene, and we'll, we'll address that area too. But before we get to all of that, I'd like to rewind back to the very, very beginning and explore some of your first gaming experiences that you recall. Um, now, obviously, a lot of this is chronicled through your various shows over the journey, but I'd love to discuss some of the first games that you played, some of the uh, some of the games that really inspired a passion for games. Do you recall what the very first game was that you ever played? Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's got to be one of a handful of games. My brother, Dagan, is 11 years older than me, so he had all of this stuff. He had an Atari 2600 and all of this yep. when I was very young. I was born in 1984. But the earliest games I remember playing are all on NES, which is still my favorite console and a major inspiration for the games that we're trying to make now. And so Kung Fu, the Irem game, is one of the first games I remember playing. Yep. Uh, Kid, I- Kid Icarus, which is still a favorite of mine. Uh, obviously, Super Mario Brothers and then Mario 2, Mario 3. And then some really random third-party games like Athena and Broader Buns, Deadly Towers, which is horrible, and games like Jackal, which is from Konami. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff just on NES very early on, and really being in a fortuitous situation, having an older brother, a substantially older brother that was already established in these worlds. So I was coming up very young, playing lots of different games, and 
really just being kind of force fed the games that were being chosen for me until I reached a certain age. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have an older sibling in like you did in your case, but uh, my mum was very, very into games, and I, I mean, I was I'm slightly slightly younger than you, so I, I was kind of brought up in the Super Nintendo era, but um, I was getting you know force fed Zelda and Final Fantasy from about the age of three or four, so it was it was kind of incredible, and obviously Super Mario Brothers, as you mentioned before, like I was getting force fed those from an early age, so it was a I don't know. I don't think there's a lot of a lot of people that would have necessarily gotten the exposure to the sort of deeper level of games that we got at such an early age. Yeah, it's interesting when you think about it, right? Final Fantasy four or two, as we knew it on SNES, is a really pivotal game for me and my brother. I used to sneak into his bedroom uh, when everyone went to bed at night. So this was when like ninety one or ninety two, and so I was you know early in elementary school and. I would just sit there and watch him play. And it's funny by doing things like this and like you with your mother playing games. It's funny that you just get to understand what video games are. Like I understood, I got to understand like turn-based battles. They're active in Final Fantasy IV as well. But, yeah. you know, statistics and equipment and random encounters and all of these things that ended up being these keystones of some of the games that I love the most. So that's like one of the the fun parts of of looking back at this is not only the games we played, but also how it taught us this innate sort of knowledge about the games that we would later go on to enjoy. And I always try to impart that on other people. People are really intimidated, for instance, by twin sticks, right? Like by using yeah. sticks on a dual shock. And I always try to tell people once you overcome that and understand it and learn it, you can take that through all of your gaming. So yeah, it, it was, it could have been totally different for me if I didn't have that, that I'm sure actually it would have been totally different for me if I didn't have that exposure. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, your point about Twin Sticks is really good because, yeah, there's a lot of a certain genres and I'd say the Twin Stick is uh, one of those where there's a lot of transferable skills. Um, and, and even in the case of, to other games and even in some cases, other kind of parts of your life. I mean, for me, like we mentioned the JRPGs there and that was something that was forced down my throat from an early age. A lot of numbers involved in that from the statistics side of things that you're talking about. Maybe it's no surprise to me that uh, professionally I became a math teacher. Oh, <laughs> but I just, interesting. Just that, that obsession with numbers began very, very early. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny because I love numbers up to a certain degree. I, I understand them to a certain degree. I used to tell people when I used to play like street hockey and keep like stats, like these really deep stat sheets for like all of the players, all of the kids on the in the neighborhood. And obviously our, like, our obsession with role playing games and stuff. But then I reach a, a certain wall where I just don't understand math anymore. So it's. It's uh, I would like to to be more in your shoes sometimes in terms of understanding it, but I just don't. I'm not smart enough for that. Oh, stuff. look, there's there's still a point where even I tap out after a little while. Like there, there's there's some ultra high level stuff that just makes my head spin. So I can still appreciate that perspective. Yeah, it's like I always joke about with uh, when there's math equations with no numbers in them. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. what? I'm like, what do you do with this? Just start so. to get the hang of it, and then they threw the alphabet in there. So where uh, when did the likes of and a lot of people know you for your love of Mega Man and Castlevania and those sorts of titles? When did they first enter the mix? Yeah, that was like in the late '80s, early '90s. So Castlevania came to the states, I think, in '87. Mega Man did as well. I was actually exposed to Mega Man at my grandma's neighbor's house in Albertson, Long Island. They had like this finished basement. They were this really nice family, the Hirsch family, and. Uh, I was introduced to like ice climbers down there and a bunch of random stuff, but that's when I first played Mega Man, and that must have been in the late '80s when I was like five years old, you know, a, a kindergartner or something like that. And yep. Castlevania was a little bit earlier. Our neighbors, the Cotchers, had the original Castlevania game and Simon's Quest, and I remember 
first being exposed to them through them. And then we obviously acquired those ourselves. And I remember very clear as day getting Castlevania three uh, for my mom when I was probably six or seven. And I remember that extremely well because I've told the story on the show. You'll, you'll know all of those old Konami and Ultra yes. NES boxes all look the same. So they're that silver outline. And I saw the box from afar and I thought she got me track and field. And I was like really mad inside because I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want. <laughs> but it ended up being Castlevania three. So, yeah, that's just a really indelible memory in my mind. So, uh, yeah. So that was when I was introduced to those. And like you said, those were incredibly influential games on me as well. I mean, Mega Man taught me my love of nonlinearity and uh, design and music and camp, which is such an important part of a lot of the stuff that I love. I love campy stuff. So, um, yeah, so that's when I was introduced to that stuff. And the only shame now is that I just feel like we need more Mega Man and more Castlevania more than oh, ever. Yeah, but I don't think yeah, we're going to get much more. Yeah, I agree in that regard. Yeah. Uh, Castlevania has been dormant for... Well, six years, so maybe we'll get something soon. But yeah, far too I long. It. I mean, it's it's been interesting to see Konami kind of release those little collections in recent years uh, that signal some level of interest, but how far that extends is still a little bit unknown. Yeah, it was really nice to see those collections. There, there was that Requiem collection that Sony helped bring out as kind of a yep. second party release, which was really cool. So playing Symphony of the Night with trophies was something I always wanted. I'm really bad at Rondo of Blood, so uh, my my skills have really atrophied so i'm having a hard time getting the platinum in that but the 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 collections you're talking about like the the contra stuff and the the arcade stuff and obviously the castlevania the the game boy nes snes genesis stuff i loved that they brought that out and it was i'll always have a soft spot for konami because you know younger gamers don't really understand i mean konami was like a titan when we were kids huge and to watch what they've become has been really weird and Seeing Capcom kind of revive itself over the last few years after being in pretty bad shape, I, I'm, I'm hoping Konami sees the light as well, but I'm not necessarily confident. That awesome Netflix Castlevania show is what I really hope will show them that there is interest in that IP because people love that. Yeah, it is a, it is a good comparison, the Capcom-Konami one there, because Capcom, yeah, as you mentioned, they were struggling, but they wanted to dig their way out of that, whereas Konami doesn't seem to have that same interest like they're pretty happy for their games division to kind of slide and i guess that's because they've got a whole bunch of other areas that they invest in as well but that's i don't know it's it's an area that i'd love to see them really dive into again and flesh out and give the time of day yeah we'll see man i don't know it's i hope that the well konami did announce that they were doing kind of more of that indie initiative not too long ago they're trying to fund yes. some games especially in europe which i think is great um especially because there's so much discoverability problem, so many discoverability problems and PR problems of getting your game out there. But we need them to treat Metal Gear with some more care and maybe something like Contra, obviously. Even seeing something like Blades of Steel come back would be cool. I I just want to see them do cool stuff because I remember that Konami. And that's the the Konami of like Azure Dreams and Suikoden. We love that Konami. Yeah, that Konami is that's an amazing Konami, and there's just a younger gamer today that doesn't know that Konami at all. That Konami has not existed their entire life, and yeah, pretty uh, much. It's yeah, sad. like yeah, it's just crazy. So, so as, as the years developed, you you found yourself getting interested in more and more games and different consoles uh, and platforms started to introduce themselves to your life. But was there, and you didn't initially start with the plan to get into games as a profession. You kind of. Uh, found your way to it eventually but was there a game at all at any point that you or maybe a collection of games that you attributed anyway as being a link 
to your continued work in games? Like, was there was there a moment where you've gone, I, because of this game or this series or something like that, I, I want to get into games as a result of this. Like, I don't want to just consume. I want to immerse myself in a greater capacity. Yeah, I think it's more of a genre than anything else. My my love of Japanese role playing games in the '90s, I think, really, and into the aughts, really cemented this persistence of playing games because I love Mario and like I Mega Man like you said is my favorite game ever I just got a dog named Rush so that that's that's my my jam but the role-playing games on SNES to a degree Genesis and certainly PS1 which I think is the golden machine for the genre 100% I feel like that was a really important era in just immersing me it made me nerdy it introduced me to storytelling and character development and lengthy experiences you, know, you can beat mario well first of all you can beat mario one in about six minutes anyone that can play the game can do that pretty easily it's it's fine it's a great game and you can beat mario 2 and mario 3 and use the whistles it, these are different experiences but with these role-playing games you really had to be meticulous take your time plan things out not rush into battle and not be unprepared it was teaching me a different way to play games so final fantasy 4 and final fantasy 6 and to a lesser degree, Chrono Trigger, and to a lesser degree, I think something like Secret of Evermore, and even kind of hybrid games like Act uh, Act Razor is one of my favorites. And then when you move yeah. into uh, PS One, this is the this was the moment for me. I mean, Wild Arms is my favorite role playing game ever, and Tales of Destiny is one of my favorite role playing games of ever. Thousand Arms, there's Threads of Fate, and all these weird games. I was I was just playing so many of these games, and I remember reading. PlayStation Magazine at the time every month and just going through the previews and reviews and I'd buy basically any role-playing game I can get my hands on and that's what I, I mentioned earlier like Azure Dreams which was kind of ahead of its time it's a it's like kind of a t- turn-based roguelite uh, role-playing game and we mentioned Suikoden earlier on these these random games that whether I beat them or not or just rented them or not or just mess with them a little bit it just piled this love of the genre on top of me and kept me engaged in games long enough to swing back around and realize all the other stuff games uh, had to offer. So while I'm not like a massive JRPG guy anymore, mostly because I think the genre is kind of, and I think has long been pretty tired, but yes. uh, it allowed me to, you know, when I got my PS1 for Final Fantasy VII, well, I, I happened to also later on get a game like Medal of Honor that taught me that I was like, wow, I really love first-person shooters. Yes, I had yeah. no idea. Yeah, I had no idea I even liked this genre. And a game like Red Faction on PS2 was another one of those. Or uh, playing something like the first Animusha or Devil May Cry on PS2 and realizing, wow, I like these really kinetic third-person action games. And so I started to swing away from Japanese role-playing games and go back to all the things that I might have missed in their more embryonic state in the 90s. So I owe a great deal to the JRPG genre. And that's why I hold it so near and dear to me. And that's why I'm so pleased when I find an amazing addition to it, like uh, I Am Setsuna is probably one of those games of the last few years that I really, yep. really loved. Agreed. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's more about the genre than this individual games for me. Yeah. And I think, I mean, one of the important things that does get lost when people talk about JRPGs is that PS1 era because I think a lot of people really associate JRPGs with Final Fantasy or Dragon Quest or even, you know, we can kind of bundle Pokemon into that, into that category as well. Um, but the PS1 era, it was a lot of the the lesser profile franchises. Obviously we did, did still have Final Fantasy and obviously Final Fantasy VII is still acclaimed as one of the greats of all time, whether you agree or disagree. Um, the Final Fantasy franchise was going strong. Dragon Quest VII, there's obviously some release issues there, but um, that was huge. But it was Wild Arms and uh, 
a whole bunch of other franchises there that uh, Suikoden that aren't these massive profiled franchises, but they were just putting out stellar release after stellar release. Yeah, Wild Arms, especially as my audience knows, I have a real soft spot for that game. And I think that game was just victimized by Final Fantasy VII's release several months later. That that studio media vision still exists and Sony still owns that IP. So they're and they have messed around with it. I mean, they did remake the original Wild Arms. I think there are five core Wild Arms games or something. So it, it does continue. But yeah, these these were just new and exciting experiences. And I think I love the PS1 era role playing games because these studios didn't quite know how, with the exception of Square and Squaresoft at the time and some others, they didn't really know how to use the machine. So we were still getting these like chibi sprite looking games, but they were just able to do a little bit more with them. And I thought that that was fine. I mean, that's that's good stuff. When you think about Final Fantasy IX, even, which is a really pretty game, they still fleshed out the systems in that game to a degree where it was almost like one of the perfect Japanese role playing games. We, we, we reached it in that era and we need more of them. So yeah, per- personally, yeah. my favorite game ever, Final Fantasy Nine. So oh, interesting. That's, that's that's my number one. So that's a, that's a fine choice. I think that that game is woefully underrated. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So as we start to move towards your career, as I mentioned before, you weren't actually on a path towards games or games media or games development for a while. There, you were you were studying American history at Northeastern. Yeah. So. When I was 14, I started writing facts at Game Facts, and I was really into it, and I enjoyed doing it, but um, I had wanted to go to college for history, like you said, so I went to Northeastern, and at that time, I was discovered at IG- by IGN and started freelancing for them, and that was kind of when things changed for me, when I realized, oh, this can't, this or rather, this can be a career path, because it's kind of like an issue of pragmatism. I think even when you're young, you realize that you're probably not going to be like a pro baseball player or... A, a, a professional musician or something like that, but maybe yeah. that's something you still strive for. And then when someone kind of cracked the door open for me and I realized through this glint of light that, wow, maybe I actually could make this happen if I tried hard enough. That was when it was a realization that I, I did want to do this. And when these two worlds kind of collided for me and I had to make decisions. So yeah, I, I finished my, my schooling and, and got my degree at Northeastern, but I immediately went into the gaming industry after that. And I had already been freelancing at that point for five years. So uh, when I graduated, I, I got the job offer from IGN. They they hired me without even me applying. I didn't even know there was an opening. And I, I had to take that opportunity, even though it cost me an, uh, that chance anyway at, at grad school. But I would be making... $40,000 a year or something teaching as an adjunct professor somewhere right now. And, and maybe I'd be really happy doing that. I don't know. But I'm just I am glad that I made the choices that I did. Yeah, I mean, you've you've been pretty successful in this in this uh, business so far. So it seems like at least on a financial sense and a career path sense, you've you've made a very solid choice. Yeah, it was I mean, it's crazier than I ever thought possible, really. But I'm, I'm proud of it. I worked hard for it. I feel like I earned it. But I also feel like and I, I try to tell people this as much as I can that I, I just think you have to play in some sort of timing obviously is a major factor and luck is a huge factor as well. Absolutely. So um, I was very lucky and I am very lucky and I, I always know that it doesn't mean I didn't earn it. It doesn't mean I didn't try hard. It doesn't mean that I didn't do what I could to retain it. It just means that it could have been anyone and it was me. So before the IGN pickup, how many guides do you think you'd prepared and do you have any particular favorites of those ones that you were doing at GameFAQs? Um, yeah, I think I wrote 32 of them at GameFAQs, 32 guides. They're still there. My name there is C. Moriarty. Most of them are from, well, all of them are from between the years of 2000 and 2002 or something like that. Um, 
and uh, they're cool because they're kind of these little pieces of digital history that still exist yeah, in, sure. their, in their in their form. I wrote that first Mega Man guide when I was in tenth grade, um, so it's cool to see that stuff. I think my favorite guide, like my opus, there is the Link to the Past walkthrough, which I know is really popular still with a lot of people. I still get a lot of messages about about that oh, guy. Nice. That's, that's just one of those guides that just bubbled up to the top, and it's like the one that people kind of consult as opposed to some of the other ones I wrote that are just one of many or just got forgotten. So yeah, so I did that stuff at GameFAQs and it was fun. I met a lot of interesting and cool people there. No one I really talked to anymore, but that was my intro in some cursory way to the industry. And without my experience at GameFAQs, I would have never heard from IGN and would have never gone down that path with them. Although again, back to the luck component, they emailed me. They could have seen some other person or some other person's name or guide and and contacted them. So, But they found yours. Yeah, it was very fortuitous, no doubt. And yeah, I mean, it's it's not often that uh, IGN pulls people in back then or now with uh, without having some sort of interview or um, actually putting the feelers out for applica- applicants, and yet you just got tapped on the shoulder and came aboard. So I guess that was for you. You go, well, I can't pass this opportunity up. They don't tap people on the shoulder all the time. Yeah, that gave me a little bit of a big head too, to be honest, because I was just like, wow, that's pretty impressive. But really, it was a timing situation because... What basically ended up happening is there was this guy named Jason Allen. I don't even know if he's in the industry anymore, but he was working at IGN as a guides writer and like a cheats editor, and he left to go to Capcom PR. And so there was an opening, and it, this all sunk up with my graduating from Northeastern. So they never even really – they basically were like, if you want the job, you can have the job. Um and That's I guess awesome. I, I and I assume that otherwise that it would have advanced from there. So, yeah, I basically got brought in as the, an associate editor at the lowest, basically lowest possible position, which was in charge of IGN sheets and then writing guides. And then I, I climbed the ladder from there. Yeah, I mean, it gets your foot in the door. Was there any difference in the way you approached doing guides once you got to IGN versus what you were doing before? Obviously, you had maybe access to greater resources than before, but did it change your approach to actually pre- uh, creating them and presenting them? Yeah, it was a little different because, well, it was really a lot different in hindsight because we were writing in, in text documents like .txt documents for at least transmitting our facts that way on GameFAQs. That's the way that they used to be read. Now that now GameFAQs has HTML and images and videos, which is crazy. I mean, that was not what it was at all, and as I'm sure you remember. And yes. so going to IGN, it was interesting that well, we had to start taking screenshots and we had to start coding the guides. And we used to have this really archaic uh, backend at IGN. It was a proprietary backend called Network in a Box or NIB. And it was this really broken, fucked up CMS. And you had to go in there and like individually publish every page. So if you had like a 140 page guide with all the HTML links and stuff, you had to go and individually publish them. And if there was like a error in the navigation, then you had to fix it all on all those pages. So it was really different because there was a lot more nonsense work that had to go into it but the results were a lot better too the fallout 3 guide i wrote in 2008 was 500,000 words and is one of the most trafficked pieces in ign's history of any kind and so that's why i I used to write guides sometimes for a couple of months and when you really think about an roi on that it's not very good but it actually was really good because that fallout 3 guide ended up dominating for so long I remember that 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 I, that guide literally got more traffic than other individual writers on the site, like total, uh, Ooh, like when yeah, you when you would look in, in analytics. So, um, 
so yeah, I stuck around because I was really, I'm really fastidious. I'm pretty OCD. I mean, that's why I'm a good guide writer. Or I was a good guide writer, I think. And so I think that that served a purpose at that point. I think my skill set, I don't know how valuable it would be anymore because people don't really like text guides anymore. And I, I fucking hate video guides so much. So I'm actually um, with you on that. There's a, yeah. there's a, again, that, that level of detail and, you know, screenshots do sometimes help to complement what's written, but to have that kind of blow by blow there rather than having to wait what they say and rewind and that sort of thing is, I think it's really handy. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's, I understand why people like these video guides. They're incredibly popular. They've killed the text guide and the, the, the written guide, but for the most part, but to me, I just don't want to watch someone doing something that I'm then going to like unpause my game and just do it. It, it just seems yeah. you know, superfluous. So, yeah, the only reason I might do that is if I'm chasing a particular trophy, I think. Yeah, the, I, I've, I've found them useful at, at times, but I'm always seeking out a guide, uh, like a text guide, because I just feel like it's it's easier for me. You know, if there's like collectibles or Intel or whatever you have to find, I don't want to watch a video for that. I just need you to tell me where they are. That's Yeah, it. perfect. I, I agree. So you mentioned climbing the ladder. Now, obviously, a lot of people know you more so for your work on all things PlayStation. Uh, when it comes to your time at IGN, whether it's uh, Podcast Beyond, being an editor of the PlayStation team, your various PlayStation game-related reviews, uh, how did that jump begin from working in uh, guides and moving on to the the stuff that we all know you for? So I've been a PlayStation fan for a really long time. I got my PS1 in 1997, and I got my PS2 at launch in October 2000. But when I moved to IGN, I was broke. I, I didn't have a PS3 or a 360. Uh, I wanted a Wii really bad, but I couldn't find one until 2008, or it was like late yep. 2007. But um, I had access to all this stuff at IGN, and I started messing around with them. And actually, it's it's two things that got me more into PlayStation exclusively, which was uh, the introduction of trophies I found really engaging. And I remember getting them in like, you know, Fallout, and Re- I think Resistance 2 was the first game I played that had them. So I found that whole thing intriguing, which is funny because I just never really cared about achievements. They just didn't speak to me like this. And the other major thing was just my induction into a podcast beyond at IGN, which happened while I was still a guides writer. So I started ingratiating myself into this ecosystem and then starting to go on to events and going on assignments and getting preview builds and then dealing with the first and second party associated PR. And before you knew it, I was pretty much an, a resident expert um, at dealing with that stuff. But I already feel like I knew a lot about PlayStation. I just was able to exercise it. But I was actually a pretty big Nintendo fanboy for a long time um, before I got into the industry. So it was a market change. I always owned most of these consoles, but I, I preferred one over the other. But yeah, I got really into PlayStation during the P- PS3 era and the PSP era, which I thought were awesome. And that's that's when I became, I guess, one of the Internet's foremost experts on on the product. And I, I just really enjoy knowing something about or a lot about something. And I don't really believe in agnosticism in games. I just I don't like it. I think it's weird. Um, it's cool that people try to play everything and have all the consoles and all that stuff. But you can't get the full experience playing like that on any one of those consoles. I feel like I'm getting a pretty thorough PlayStation experience, for instance, without really experiencing much of anything on the other consoles. And I think it's actually more fulfilling for me that way. And I think it really showed through in a lot of the, the written work in, uh, that you did at IGN as well, the, the history series. So you're talking, I'm talking about like when you went to Naughty Dog or Insomniac, for example, and explored those studios and presented these incredibly like massive pieces uh, that outlined the histories of those respective studios. And you just can't get that from someone who's trying to straddle all, all console platforms slash PC as well. 
Yeah, and I also think it's fun to just focus on the extraneous stuff to the games themselves. We love the games. The games are fun to play. They're the end product. They're the reason we're here. But the industry is so interesting and so full of stories. And so it's so young still that I don't think it's being adequately explored in that more academic fashion. So I tried to use some skills that I learned in college. I mean, with my history degree, and I worked at the Massachusetts Historical Society for a little while. So I'm a, I'm a good researcher. I'm a good annotator and note taker. And it seemed like it was a um, a good way to fuse those different skill sets into something meaningful that people still love that those history pieces are still cited by people and enjoyed. And I think that that's really cool. And I'm, I'm really grateful to my bosses at IGN for letting me do that because I was gone, like just talking to people and you know, writing this stuff and taking a really long time getting it done. And, and they were patient because I think the end product was totally worth it. Well, I must say personally, and uh, you spoke about that, that other side of games and getting into the background and the creators and how these games come to be like that's uh, that series that you put together personally is a massive inspiration for this show and a few other different things that I do uh, in, in relation to games, because it's, it's those stories that I really grew to love and wanted to be able to try and tell myself. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad that that could inspire you. Uh, and we're seeing a lot more of this now, which I think is cool. I'm kind of out of that game now. I don't really have the time to dedicate to the deep historical pieces at all anymore, even though I know people want me to do that. It's just not practical. But I'm glad that other people are taking up the mantle, especially on YouTube. There's a lot of good stuff. And there's just so much history and so much richness in in the industry that it, it can't be ignored. The games... The games are great, but they almost are like the most forgettable part sometimes of the the, the greater experience of uh, the journey of making something. And uh, it's almost like disappointing when the end product is there because then the story is over. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, they're a product of the team or the individual or collection of individuals. And to come to understand their stories is, is equally imp- as important as the final product itself. Definitely. I agree. So you obviously, yeah, you worked in at IGN in a whole bunch of different capacities, whether uh, starting with guides, moving into uh, editorial, the the podcast, and the uh, beyond is, I guess, one of those real big tentpole parts that we we did reference a little bit before. But I guess it really helped probably drive a community to you as well. Definitely, I mean, I think we or I owe everything to podcast beyond and the audience there, and in a way, Chris Roper, who's the person who brought me onto the show, because it was, I mean. Podcast Beyond was huge. I don't know how it does anymore, but in that era, the show was massive and we had a really good time doing it. And it was an awesome way to to connect with people and the audience and talk to people. And podcasts were still kind of nascent at that time, too. Everyone has a podcast now. But even in 2008, 2009, podcasting was still looked at as a waste of time. I mean, even it's so fucking crazy to think about and really shows some sort of, I don't know, ineptitude. But that we weren't even selling ads on on the podcast at IGN like they were just things that we wanted to do to com- connect with the community was is is insane considering the billions of dollars in ad revenue that podcasts bring in today so these yes. things we, so i feel like we were running well ahead of the trends with a lot of the, with what we were doing with podcasts beyond because also it was it's it, it's really the beginning of my irreverent podcast style where i i really don't like doing serious podcasts i don't think it's fun and I, I'd rather be silly and zany and still be informative and and teach people something or whatever, uh, expose them to things. But as far as Podcast Beyond is concerned, it just set a, a number of cadences in how I would do content in the future. And I always feel like we were tracking well ahead of, of the trends. We, we started that podcast or 
that podcast was done well in advance of podcast being popular. And then when we left IGN in 2014, we, we did that well ahead of the trend of people not realizing that it was actually the personalities behind these sites and these podcasts that people cared about and not just the the name on the masthead. So it's it's a sequence of, again, fortuitous events. But also, again, I got to give myself a little bit of credit for identifying some of these trends and taking advantage of situations as they were presented. I was, I'm was i pretty ruthless in that way. If someone's going to present a, an opportunity to me, I, I want to make sure I leave it all out on the field so that I know that yeah, I couldn't have done anything different. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to be looking back, you know, some undefined number of years down the line and rue choices that you could have made and you didn't. Exactly. I would rather know even if I failed. So that's always been my mantra with that stuff. Yeah, and also feel free to indulge that irreverent style here. There's absolutely no concerns here going off t- off on different tangents and having all sorts of fun with it. So please, at any at any point. Yeah, fair uh, enough. I I love my tangents. So. So, moving uh, moving from IGN. You then went off with Greg, Tim, Nick to go f- and and Kevin as well to go form kind of funny. That period there where you're uh, again, this is one of those big junk uh, junction points here. You're about to make a, deci- a massive decision for your career. You're well established at IGN. You probably didn't need to go in the professional sense, um, but it, there's this golden opportunity for you. You're getting potentially going to be well ahead of the curve. What was that like? What was going through your head at that time when you were looking to make that decision or in, engaging with that deci- uh, potential decision there? How did what was going through your mind? It was scary. I mean, I, I remember how scared I was as 2014 waned and it real, I realized that we were going to do this um, full time. It was a scary thing because like you said, I had a, I was senior editor at that time of IGN. I had a, a secure job. I was well paid. When I hear about what, how, how much some people at IGN still make today, I'm like, man, that's crazy. These guys don't fight hard enough for themselves because I wasn't making that. Um, but when we decided to leave, I mean, they even offered us promotions and more money, a lot more money and all of that. We just wanted to move on, but it felt like a huge risk. And I, I felt like it was a coin flip like an authentic coin flip where we just didn't know which direction it was going to go and how it was going to land. And the good news is that it did really well. I mean, it well exceeded our expectations. Our audience was there for us. They were they were behind it. We were the first major Patreon success story, which is super cool because it's such a ubiquitous uh, service today and has helped so many people, so many artists and creators do their thing. So that's really cool to be kind of in the proving ground for that as well. But uh, yeah, it was a scary time, and I remember the launch day very well, and I remember uh, I remember the excitement of that first year. I, I still think, I'm biased, I guess, but kind of funny in 2015 into 2016 is like, that's good stuff, man. And we really were firing on all cylinders and doing something totally different than that's ever been done before. And as it started to become more like IGN light, that's when I started to kind of get tired of being there. But during the period in which we were just being ourselves in the spare bedroom and being silly and doing the shows and the live show and all that, it was yep. it was a really good time and um, and I owe a lot to that to that experience too. Yeah, I mean, as a consumer, I, I lapped up every moment of especially those early years. Um, there was, I mean, still a great level of depth to some of the content that's coming out, but the humor was right on point. Everyone was just full steam ahead, really in sync with one another. It was great, but what was it that when it when it came to making that decision what was it you said it was a coin flip you know 50-50 choice there what was it for you that just tipped things in favor of making this new pursuit um i didn't want to be left alone there without greg was a major oh, yeah, thing yeah. With, with it and 
I really think that it would have turned out differently if Greg and I left by ourselves, uh, maybe with Nick or something later on, and and tried to keep it a little smaller and more streamlined because I think a lot of the early uh, chemistry comes from the chemistry he and I shared together. It really had nothing to do with anything else. People were there for him and I. And yep. so um, I realized that there's without him and I at IGN, it would be weird. And without him and I at Kind of Funny, it would be weird. Like we have to kind of move together in a way. And he was all about doing this. And I trusted Greg. So and he he was right. He was right on. So it all worked out in the end. But it was it was scary. I was really the last person to sign on um, of the four of us. And I remember uh, very well the conversations I had with people like Per Schneider and others trying to really convince me not to do it so it's a memorable time so long ago now i mean i guess it's not that's not that long ago it's not not to be so dramatic but it's (laughs) it's six seven years ago this time has really flown by but yeah i remember i remember we decided if we launched our patreon in september of 2014 i was in japan when we did it and um I remember that very well because we were like, holy shit, man, we already we're already at like what what was like thirteen or fifteen thousand dollars a month just for Game Over Greggy's show while we're still at IGN and all this. And it's like, man, we're going to we can actually really do great shows and clean up by uh, by maybe throwing ourselves into this full time. And so we did. Yeah, I'd imagine you uh, your decision felt fairly validated fairly quickly because it really did blow up. Um, there was a lot of publicity about you guys breaking off from IGN. Uh, a lot of people jumping onto the Patreon very quickly. Obviously, you're huge for Patreon as a platform as well. Uh, how soon did you come to realize that, okay, I've made the right choice. I can I can exhale now. Um, everything's okay. Yeah, the first day, um, January 5th, uh, 2000, what was it? Two, January 5th, 2015. Yeah. And uh, when we launched the 9 a.m. Pacific, we launched uh, Kind of Funny Games and the YouTube channel and the new Patreon. So two, we had two Patreons going and just watching the numbers grow. It became very quickly. It became clear that A, we have a very popular business. B, it's a very stable business. And C, we're going to make a lot of money doing this. Um, and it was all that's all very appealing to me. I'm a, I'm a unabashed capitalist. So um, so it's it's pretty interesting to have had that weight lifted quickly because there's still doubts about what you're doing and if it's really going to work long term and is it a flash in the pan and but I was a pretty I'm a pretty keen saver of money I don't really spend a lot of money so I was prepared for the you know for some any sort of inevitability and um and I also feel like in some degree uh we wouldn't it just wouldn't have worked at any other time. I don't think, I think we could have gone too early or too late. We just went at the right time that, that, um, that perfect pocket to allow us to, to find a market, a hungry market at our peak. And again, that goes back to what I was saying earlier. Just, it's just timing, man. It's just, we, we really hit the timing well on a lot of this stuff. And also I think that our, our presence on Twitch was pretty revolutionary compared to what people were, were doing on Twitch and really still seem to be doing on Twitch. When I came up with the idea yeah. for Colin and Greg Live, there was nothing like that. And that became a really popular thing. And that's that's still, a, I think, a pretty important vertical of their... They don't call it Colin and Greg Live anymore, but still a pretty important vertical of their um, of their business. So, Yeah, I, I agree. Um, there's, there wasn't a lot of people doing something that was not streaming a game. So uh, it was yeah, it was a big deal in that regard. What was uh, what were some of the things that you really enjoyed the most about that time? Because obviously at IGN, everything you do is exclusive to games. But by the time you, uh, 
by the time Kind of Funny was formed, you obviously had that gaming component with Kind of Funny Games, but you did also get to have things like the Game Over Greggy show. Uh, obviously, you got to create some of your own shows like Colin Greg Live, which was still gaming-centric, but did indulge in other aspects as well. Uh, there was Colin Was Right. You had various other off-topic bits and pieces that would pop up, pop up along the way. Were they some of the highlights of that time as well because it got to engage you in other parts of your life, not just games? Yeah, I loved, I loved the kind of agnostic and... Um almost like kind of ethereal way we would cover games where it was just very floaty and whatever was in the air at the time was what often what we would talk about with culture too like you're saying and so yeah I loved I what I really loved the most about that era and what I still love the most the most about doing Colin's Last Stand as opposed to IGN which was a great place to work but is that I'm just not playing as many games as I did at IGN I just don't feel this compulsion to keep up with the Joneses as it were and instead yep. really just play whatever I want to play, however I want to play it, whenever I want to play it. And that was something we really began at Kind of Funny or to do at Kind of Funny. And, and it's something that I've parlayed into my business now. So there was that too, like where my whole life didn't have to be dominated by video games. It could uh, be more than that. And it, it felt fulfilling from that perspective because IGN obviously covers a lot of different things too, but we are in our little silos and it was cool to kind of be liberated from that for sure. Yeah, I mean... um. The, the whole idea of being able to play what you want when you want is something that I've probably only recently rediscovered in the last couple of months, I guess 2020, with the, the way that the year's been with the pandemic and games being delayed and those sort of things. There's been some little open windows and pockets of time and I've gone and sat down to play games just because I want to. And it's been a nice, uh, it's been a nice liberating feeling. Yeah, it's great. I love it. So I always encourage people to play games in the way that, that makes the most sense. And uh, if that means playing games, uh, chronically and compulsively then do that but it's just cool for me to be able to kind of step back and just play the games that mean the most to me yeah um, I mean I'm part of a sizable-ish team so it's it's nice to not be trying to play everything all the time but there are still these little it does feel like it's unrelenting in a capacity so uh, it's it's good to be able to just play something because I want to I've been going back and play I've made it a goal this year because uh, like we mentioned earlier in the show, JRPGs have always been one of my big things. And whether it's an old game or a new game, I've I've kind of fallen off them, similar to yourself this year. And actually, similar to yourself, you you had a little goal to play. Uh, was it basically one a month? For yeah, the year? Was that yeah, right? yeah. I only got through I think four so far, so I don't. It's not going too well, but yeah, that was that yeah, was my goal. My goal wasn't quite as lofty. I actually just set the goal of four myself, but um, which I've managed to tick off, and it's it's been a good feeling to kind of re-engage with a genre that I love. Um, and these little empty pockets of time have been golden opportunities to re-engage myself in that in that genre and other franchises as well. Yeah, it's um, I don't know. It's it's cool to kind of re-engage and make these own little meta games for yourself that allow you to you know fulfill that compulsion to go back and it's a little bit of a nostalgic feeling for me playing those kinds of games, even if they're newer games as well. Um, so yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's good stuff. I'm glad that you're doing that too. So following on from kind of funny and there's a lot of conversation about kind of the departure there. And I don't think we, unless you really want to, I don't think we really need to engage too much in that side of it because there's a lot of conjecture and a lot of hearsay and a lot of that sort of stuff. And uh, Colin's last stand was formed and you began with politics and history. So you really re-engaged with that, that education from Northeastern and a lot of, a lot of that, that deep passion that you haven't really got uh, been able to engage with in a long time. What was that window of time like? It was great just because I needed to get that off my chest. 
it was this this nagging feeling uh, that I just I, I needed to explore this political punditry. I needed to explore this other part of me and see if it would work or not. And the thing is, is that it worked great. It was huge, um, but it wasn't fulfilling. I actually realized that the the kind of hand to hand street combat that's required in games is just not for me. Or I'm sorry, in politics is just not for me. I'm a very political person. I'm a very opinionated person. I I I'm, I consider myself principled. I enjoy that sphere. I enjoy consuming stuff in that sphere. But making things and engaging in that environment was just not fun for me at all. And uh, I found it. So it was exciting. I'm glad I got it off my chest. It was cool for a while. But ultimately, it just um, I needed to get away from it because it was just it was so negative in the in the Trump era and really not constructive and it's even worse now i don't even know what the fuck i would do with myself if i stayed i would be freaking losing it at this point so um yeah much like you know because people talk about this sometimes where they're like well it's kind of weird that the company changed and i'm like well not really uh when we founded kind of funny people think kind of funny was founded in 2015 it wasn't uh we founded it in 2013 yeah well um, before and it was the first shows on it were a conversation with Colin, which had nothing to do with video games and Oreo oration. Those were the, and Greg's like uh, blog or vlog thing that had, these things had nothing to do with games. In fact, kind of, we didn't do kind of funny games content for three years because we weren't allowed to do it. Yeah, so it's the, the relationship with IGN that kind of dictated that, right? Right, exactly. So kind of funny changed into what it is today. And no one seems to really think that that's weird, but people think it's somewhat weird that I changed the direction of my company, but I'm like, this stuff happens all the time. Look at Nintendo. You know, Nintendo wasn't oh, yeah. a, you know, All Nintendo's time. the great example of uh, they were a playing card company. You know, it, it's, things things change. And so now uh, very few people know them for that. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it was in the they were founded, what, in the 1890s or something. It, it was it's different. Companies change. We, we were talking about Konami before, too. And we are we saw Konami change and they're much more into like fitness centers and pachinko and stuff like that. I mean, it's you chase the money or you chase the market or whatever your investors want to do or the people that are involved want to do. And I think that that's super awesome. So, um, so yeah, I, I changed directions in, you know, after six months or so, and I'm really glad that I did. And people really wanted me back in that sphere. And I'm glad I, I needed a break and I needed to get away from, uh, from what was happening, um, in, in politics in 2017, but I also needed that, that time away from games too, to re to appreciate them again. And I've done that in the past. Like I've, I've stopped playing games for months at a time and uh, several times in the past and it, and it reinvigorates you and makes you appreciate them again. And, and actually I, I remember in the fall of 2017, when I started really playing games again, I was like, so enthralled with going back. It just felt so fresh and new again. So it was exciting. Yeah, it's awesome. Let's hope. Let's hope in the Konami example that they kind of model their trajectory on yours, and they find their way back to games at some point as well. Yes, I would love that. I hope so too. So, was there a moment at all where you kind of realized? Obviously, you said it was about six months, but was there a particular moment at all where the penny dropped and you realized, "Geez, I need to. I need to go back to games. This is just not what I want or or need, or it's not good for me, or whatever." Yeah, I don't know if it was like a, a particular moment. I just think that I would—I just had this crushing feeling. I was just like, I'm not, I'm not happy with this at all. I'm not happy doing this. I don't want to, I don't want to be in this world. It's it's soul sucking and miserable. And so I think it was just this. It wasn't wasn't really obviously a slow build up, but it was a build up nonetheless. And 
I finally let the dam break and really started to explore what it would look like to go back to games and finding that the audience was just so eager for me to come back. And um, it's crazy, man, to, to just find success in one thing, then leave that thing to find success doing something else, but not finding happiness and then going back to the original thing and then finding more success again. It really is uh, owed all to the audience and to their amazing uh, patience, their amazing support and their desire for whatever it is I do, because it seems like it has an audience, a persistent audience, lots of people that have been with me for years. And I'm not quite sure what makes our content or my content stand out and differentiate itself. But there's a there's a micro community there for it, which is awesome. And that's what the modern Internet is all about, is this flexibility and this um, and finding the exact niche that you belong in. And so that's what we that's what we started to build with CLS um, beginning in late 2017 with SideQuest, and then 2018 we launched Knockback, and then uh, summer 2018 we launched Sacred Symbols. So we we There's got Fireside Chats in there as well. Obviously. Oh yeah, fi- not, yeah, Fireside not running at the moment, but yeah, yeah, Fireside Chats was founded before I made the segue back to games, but it it persisted until uh, like mid 2019. So yeah, there that that is in there as well, and uh, we'll have more to come, I think in. You know, the next few months, we, we have some ideas brewing. I, I don't like doing too much content, so we, we really try to be deliberate about what we need to do. But yeah, there'll be more stuff to talk about. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, when you did decide to make that decision to go back to games, you obviously mentioned that uh, the fact that it was you and Greg going together when it came to transitioning from IGN to kind of funny. The fact that you didn't have Greg there at that point would obviously, maybe in your mind, have some sort of a bearing on the and you know, maybe even place a seed of doubt in your mind. Like, is it, was it me? Was it the both of us? The fact that it's only me, is that going to have a bearing here? Are people going to come back? Was, was Were there any of that doubt? Were there any of those doubts in your mind about that uh, potential success when it came to finding games? Again? Yeah. Yeah. Just because you, like you said, you don't know exactly what the chemistry was that made it all work. And when you're told by people that hate you enough that you rode someone's coattails to the top, uh, which people that don't like me tell me about Greg, um, which isn't representative. Uh, you know, it, that always bothered me just because I was like, first of all, I worked at IGN way longer than Greg. And um, I was there before no anyone knew who Greg was. And uh, it, we really did look at it as a team effort. So it's kind of shitty to try to pit us at one against the other or try to pretend one is responsible for the other because I don't think that that's uh, true. I think that I've largely been robbed in some way of my own legacy in regards to the content that we did together as if I didn't exist at all. Um, And I think that that's kind of shitty. Uh, We saw that with Podcast Beyond when they did their 500th episode or whatever, and they didn't even mention me or talk to me or anything and do when they did a segment. I was like, I did 325 episodes of the show. So um, I don't know about that. But uh, nonetheless, I I feel like I didn't quite know how it was going to work out. And what I learned was that it it made me believe in myself a, a lot, I guess, because I learned that there were a lot of people that were there for me. And when you're around a personality as boisterous and as gravitational as Greg, you start to think that it's not really for you. It's for the other guy and you're kind of there and you, you fill your role. But what I realized was I was like, wow, there was a massive portion of our audience that was there. That was in for Colin. Um, And they came along with us. And so that was really nice to see. So even though I feel like I've, kind of been you know written out of the history books of IGN and in the history books of podcast beyond and kind of funny and all of that which is it is what it is I I don't I don't think you can um I don't think you can ignore that I found an even greater success by myself and that 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 does say something about me and 
I, I'm, I take a, a point of pride in that because uh, Collins Last Stand is still the biggest games media centric Patreon in the world, and um, I built it's that. Awesome validating. Yeah, it was it, exactly, and I built it by myself. I mean, with very little help. So, and and really no no support, like no systemic support, no mainstream support, no media support. We found that when we launched Sacred Symbol, um, when we launched Twin Breaker, the game later on was just like, we knew we weren't going to get any coverage from anyone. So we needed to to find different ways to get people to know about the game. So that's the same thing we're doing with CLS is we just have to find alternate routes to people's ears. And the beauty of podcasting and why I'm such a believer in it is that I could literally set up like a an Apache server in my bedroom and serve audio files to people if I really needed to, if I got kicked off of everything. Like there is some sort of control over the content as opposed to working on YouTube or Twitch where you're beholden to these, these, um, these really, yeah, these exactly these gatekeeping companies and these, these mega corporations that don't really care about you and everything hinges on that. And so I'm a really b- big believer in the, in the platform as well. The, the whole audio format I think is, is just perfect. So at what point did you realize, because yeah, obviously you mentioned uh, side quests and sacred symbols and knockback and there's obviously more to come. Uh, when did you realize that, because the, the name Colin's last stand at, at surface, uh, surface value, a lot of people go, oh, it's, it's, it's Colin and that's it. But in fact, Chris came along for the journey with sacred symbols. Dagon's in there for knockback. You've got Dust and you've got Maddie J. There's a few other people that have kind of immersed themselves or, or have kind of joined the family over the journey. Um, when did you realize that you needed more support when it came to sacred symbols, which obviously it's a bit harder to do a, a solo PlayStation podcast. How did you determine that Chris was the person to come with you? How did all that start to form? Yeah, I realized in early 2018 that I was really trying to do too much and uh, I'm a, a real control freak with my product. So I was doing everything. I was editing all the shows and it was just, it was a lot of work. And so Dustin actually reached out to me to offer to his work and um, to edit the podcast, which was a huge relief to me. And so we did that. And that was basically, it's one of those examples where it's like, man, he just asked and made himself available. And now he's my full-time employee and he, he works for me and that's what he does for a living. So it, it really worked out well for us. He's, he's perfect in the sense that I'm a really um, uh, reclusive person, which I think a lot yeah. of people know. I hate talking on the phone. I don't answer text messages sometimes. I like to just kind of disappear. And I need someone that understands how it, how I roll and understands how I work and operate. And Dustin gets it and doesn't awesome. com- doesn't really complain about things. Sometimes he complains, but he doesn't really complain about things. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just renewed him for, you know, we, he just signed another contract with me. And um, I, I want to pay him well and treat him well and all that because he's so important to the company. But it was really vital to find someone that that sunk with me um, and my little idiosyncratic ways of doing things. And he just gets it and he goes along for the ride, which is cool. And then Dagan and I talked about doing things for a while and knockback seemed like they made a lot of sense. Dagan's a really great podcaster, but a lot of that came from him just being a voracious consumer of podcasts and he just became really natural at doing it. So he's a fan favorite and Chris, I had met um, a long time ago at Dave Rubin's house randomly, and then we kept in touch. And uh, I just I would watch him talk about games, and I knew he wanted to get more into games and kind of get away more from the comedy space and from the YouTube space and kind of diversify himself. And uh, so I, I reached out to him. I, I was good friends with his ex girlfriend Lacey Green, and so 
we all met up and I brought him to lunch and we talked and he wanted to do the show with me. And so that's how that's how our friendship kind of spawned and how we began to work together. And he's he's doing a great job. And that's that was over two years ago that we started doing that. So the time is is certainly flying. So, yeah, we have all these different verticals and all these new voices. And we got Mr. Matty plays involved now and we'll have more people, I think, doing different things. But again, I don't want it to be too big. And the name CLS, it, it reminds me a lot of IGN. IGN used to mean Imagine Games Network. IGN has a lot me- of people don't know. Right, exactly. It, but it doesn't mean anything. It literally doesn't mean anything today. It hasn't meant anything. The acronym hasn't stood for anything in almost 20 years. People think that it means like internet gaming news or whatever. It's, I'm like, no, IGN doesn't mean anything. In fact, we used to make shirts that say it means nothing. Um, and uh, But Imagine, which was a big publisher, uh, owned IGN at some point. In the 90s, they owned N64.com and these other sites as well, PSX Power, and they merged them all together into IGN and then sold them off. And Fox bought the company, uh, News Corporation. And um, so then IGN just ceased to to mean that, but they kept the name because that was the recognizable name. And I feel the same thing with CLS. Like CLS means Colin's Last Stand. It it represents a time in my life, but CLS is the brand and the umbrella. And I've thought about rebranding and changing the name, but I'm not going to do it. It's it's too much work and it's a huge risk actually as well. It seems like people understand what it is and that's all that matters. Yeah, that's fantastic. So uh, these have progressed and obviously the, the shows have persisted and there's, there's more on the way as we discussed before, but, and this, you know, and nearly an hour into the podcast, we've, we're kind of getting to the actual crux of what the show is meant to be here talking about uh, people in development and their careers in development. Uh, Barry emerged Barry, uh, people might know for his work on Hybroxia and Perils of Baking, and the two of you kind of came together here to work together on Lily Mo Games. Yes, Obviously the company was established at that point, and you've you've climbed aboard. How did that actually begin? Yeah, so he, uh, it's interesting. Barry it was one of my very first um, uh, PSN followers, and I didn't even realize it. His name is Breath of Water, which is a Breath of Fire reference, of course, and. Yes. Um, so he's been my friend on PSN forever, and we just didn't really know it, but we would keep in touch and talk every once in a while. And then he reached out randomly, I think when Hybroxia came out, for me to kind of look at it and give him some feedback on it, which I did, and gave him notes on the game. And we just started talking about what if we worked together, and we actually started working on a brawler, uh, like a 2D Double Dragon Final Fight style brawler. Oh, awesome. um, and the demo still exists. We were going to do that, and then I was like, he was making this other game, uh, a Brick Breaker, just as like a prototype, and he knows how I feel about that genre, so I was like, let's do that game instead. That just sounds different. Um, we might return to the Brawler one day, but there, as you can see on the market with the, the revival of like the Kunio-kun River City stuff and all yes. of that, like the, the, that genre is like making a comeback. Um, it's tricky to get back into. Right, exactly. Streets of Rage 4 just came out. So there's like not really a need for some indie brawler that's probably not going to be as good as some of these games. So we went in this other direction and decided to work together. And I just I decided to write the story for this Brick Breaker, knowing that nothing like that had ever really been done before. And so I started writing it last fall and we started really building the game out. And Barry is uh, Barry Johnson is his name. He's he's up in Ontario, Canada, and he's just a great talent. He's a hard worker. He understands what he's doing. He knows games. He understands what fun means. And we really decided that we were going to just try to make games that we consider to be supplemental content to people's 
triple A addiction. And that's totally fine. I understand why Call of Duty, Black Ops, Cold War, whatever it's going to be called, is going to sell yeah. 25 million copies. It's because people like it. But you might need something in the quiet hours at night or in between games or something to play or mess around with that's not going to demand too much of your time. And that was kind of the original premise of the stuff we were trying to make. So with Twin Breaker, we made a 40 stage brick breaker with incredible amount of story in it, collectibles, lots of dialogue and all of that. And um, and tried to do something truly different. And then when the game came out in March, it was successful. And we um, actually when yeah, when does this go up? Is this going to go up like next week or something? Yeah, in the imminent imminent future, yeah, probably about a fortnight from now. A fortnight. We record this. Okay, so I can say then that um, we're everyone knows that we're bringing the game to to switch Xbox One and PC. But by the time this goes live, we will have announced that. And, oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, and we're going with East Asia Soft as our publisher on those platforms, and uh, we're really excited about that, too. And we're also looking at publishing a, a game as well that someone else is making. So, oh, cool. Yeah, so we're expanding the operation, which is why I think I'm so busy. But it's been really cool. So we just found each other, and we talked. I'd have to go in my email to figure out exactly how it went, but maybe I'll do that when I write my memoir one day. But um at some point, it came up the the idea of me buying a piece of the company came up, and so I did, and um, so I own forty nine percent of Lily Mo. Barry controls fifty one percent of it, so he has the controlling share. And actually, Collins Last Stand technically owns forty nine percent of Lily Mo, and so our collaboration is permanent. And we're releasing a game in a couple of months, uh, Habroxia Two. So it'll be uh, it'll be fun for people to get involved in that and and see what they think of it. And I've really enjoyed immersing myself in development after being around it for so long and telling stories about it it's cool to now be in it and understand it and understand what it's like to get your game reviewed and to understand people's criticisms of stuff you wrote and that some people are going to hate your shit i kind of get that already because people hate me for other things so it wasn't that big of a uh, progression but that's how i got involved with barry and so yeah we're uh, working on Habroxia uh, 2, and then we're ma- we are making a JRPG, which is going to be a bigger game, and that I, I imagine that won't be out until uh, twenty twenty two at the earliest. Yeah, that's I mean that's that's all fantastic to hear, and there's there's lots of cogs moving at the moment. Now we we mentioned early on, even when you first uh, began at IGN, that you had people that were leaving and getting into uh, the gaming various different sectors of the gaming industry, whether it's PR or you know some people will get into the actual development side of things. Did that ever emerge as a consideration for you in these years so at IGN or kind of funny or even uh, in the earlier years of Collins Last Stand? Did you at any point consider that you might yourself actually get involved in development? Because you used to talk about, you know, I've, I've got this dream for, for a Mega Man game or for Castlevania. But it never, as someone who's kind of listened to it, never seemed like it was something, though, that as much as you would love to have done it, Unless it was those very particular set of circumstances, it didn't seem like you were interested in actually getting involved in the scene in any way, shape, or form. Was that something at any point that you considered? Yeah, I uh, I did. I, I felt around at Insomniac for a while at some point um, when I was at IGN and had some conversations with some people around there. And um, the one thing I remember is that there was a an, an associate producer role for... Um, Giant Sparrow when they were making um, uh, Edith Finch. Finch. Yeah. And I remember thinking about applying for that. And that's about as close as I ever got when I was like really unhappy at IGN. I wasn't very happy there my last couple of years. So 
I was more keenly keeping an eye on stuff like that and at PlayStation and whatnot. But I, I most people segue out and go to PR and marketing, which is just not. I would be a horrible PR person, which would be all. I would be awful. Um, so it's just yeah, it's not for me. So it, it was always an option, but people that write games will tell you that there's not that many roles for for full time writers in games. And uh, that I can that I so I needed to find my own studio basically to, in order to write my own games and that, and that's what we ended up doing. So yeah, I didn't intend I didn't intend on on going this route, but but I did nonetheless, and uh, it seems to have worked out. And I'm glad I did it because it's easy to be a critic, um, harder to put a game out and for it to be criticized. And now I understand both angles of it, which is rare. Most people that crit- that. Most people that you read that crit- uh, criticize games will never review or never make a game. They have no idea what it's like to make a game. And um, so th- even if it's just for that insight, I think it's been very valuable for me. Yes. Uh, was there was there much that you were able to bring with you from though? You know, you had a lot of connections, especially probably at your, your peak period of IGN. Uh, you would have had a lot of connections at a lot of different studios, big or small. Do you feel like they helped in any way, shape, or form, kind of minimize that jump that you had to make from going uh, about commentating about games to actually being involved in the development of them? Yeah, I think the only thing that really helped me was the the end result, like how to, like knowing, being the target of thousands and thousands and thousands of PR pitches in my life uh, on a constant basis, especially at IGN and Kind of Funny, not so much these days, mostly because we don't want to work with PR at CLS, yep. which is a pretty big part of our... Um, our temple there. But, uh, the, the, the thing I learned the most or how ha- I could take with me was just this idea of like, how do you get people's attention? Like, how do you, how do you cross the one yard line into the, into the end zone? Now that the game's done, how do we get the right PR people? How do we market? What's the trailer going to look like? What, I just looking back at what caught my eye and how people got my attention. We tried to do that to the best of our ability. So that was somewhere that I could have some practical effect on the product as opposed to just writing it and producing it. What were some of the challenges you found of writing for a game versus writing about them? That you know something you'd obviously done for a long time, but this is a very different approach, I presume. Uh, what was that like for you, and how did you kind of adjust to those different mindsets? I guess. I think that I just needed the the big difference here is that there is publishing online, but you can edit things and things change. You can even delete stuff. At some point, I had to walk away from the story and like set it and ready ready to go. Like it can't be changed anymore. In fact. I changed the story so much that I think I was probably responsible for it coming out pretty late because uh, or later than we probably wanted it to. I should say just because um, I basically rewrote the intro. We needed new art. I wrote the dialogue like really late. I just ad- randomly was like, I'm adding dialogue to the game. At, like the yeah. last moment, those dialogue scenes didn't even exist in one of the final builds of the game. Uh, so I learned a lot about trying to organize myself better. I'm looking at it now in my office. I have a huge bulletin board that I'm storyboarding the JRPG on. And so I'm trying to be much more organized. I have like color coded cards and like flow charts and the way things go so that I can make a roadmap for the artists and stuff like that and not kind of screw up the the schedule anymore. Uh, With a more ambitious game like this, we're going to have to be much more disciplined. So or I'm going to have to be much more disciplined. So that was something that I really had to learn was how to walk away and how to accept it and we can patch things. Actually, a funny story I don't think I ever told anyone is that if you look in the patch notes of Twin Breaker, you'll see that one of the patch notes says change the date on a col- on one of the collectibles on like collectible seven. And that was one edit I made to the story is that I was uh, dating this girl, like just seeing this girl here. 
and her birthday yeah. was whatever it was. And I put her in the game, like her birthday in the game is one of the collectibles. And then she well, nice. and then and then she broke up with me. So I removed her her uh, birthday from the game. <laughs> and uh, and that's actually in the patch notes. But um, but otherwise, yeah, we I had to just learn how to walk away to like really establish the baseline for what we were doing and then allow people to work on it from there, because I don't have the artistic or programming skills to make those edits. So ultimately, someone else will have to deal with my disorganization. And that's not really fair. But I'd imagine uh, transition from Twin Breaker to Hybroxia 2 and Twin Breaker 2 and the JRPG and all those sorts of things that are going to pop up down the line. Uh, I'd imagine you've taken a lot from that experience and from a lot of these things that went right and wrong working on Twin Breaker for you. I'd imagine they've been really valuable lessons for you and probably helped set up this pin board with all your notes and timelines and whatnot. Yeah, I think one of the major things we learned about Twin Breaker, I think Barry would agree, is uh, we ha- we should have let more people play it. I think the game is really good. I was actually playing it last night. So I have the I have three of the four platinum trophies you can get in the game because the physical version have has their own platinums on Vita and PS4. So I was playing I've been playing the PS4 version uh over the last couple of nights and I, I mean it's like patting yourself on the back but I'm like this game is really good. Like I really <laughs> I'm really proud of this game. Um and it, it's it's cool to have put it out there uh into the world but we really realized when we put it out that it was way harder than we, than we thought it was. I actually remember feedback started coming in. Right, exactly. Like we, this is it's so fucking stupid because of course we should have known this innately, but we played it so much that we just became really good at it. And so I remember thinking, and I think even writing, to, and I, I would have to look to Barry, being like, I think the game might be too easy. And we got the exact opposite feedback. There are stages in the game that people find infuriating. And so we got to play test the games more uh, in the future. And so that was a, a major thing we learned. I, I just don't think we let enough people in uh, into the back to play it and mess around with it. And so that's something we're certainly going to put a lot more time and effort into, whether we just let our friends play it or some, with something like the JRPG, we might have to really hire an external QA company at that point. But um because that game will have the opportunity to be broken in any number of ways. But I think we just learned that we needed to let more people in. We were pretty secretive and pretty protective of the game. And uh, yeah, understood. yeah. And the other thing that I learned was just uh, how to take criticism. I still haven't read most of the reviews for the game. Um, Look, if you want to read mine, feel free. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I will. <laughs> uh, I don't know which ones I have read and, ha- and haven't, to be honest. I just feel like, I feel like the game was not really reviewed uh, uh, I mean, who am I to say this? I, I I think the game is underscored. I don't I don't think the game is like an eight point five or anything, um, on Metacritic. But I think it's like a sixty eight or a sixty nine, and I'm like, that's not, that's not accurate. <laughs> you know, like I yeah, I mean, I don't know. If I ju- if I just you know base it purely on my own my own thoughts and my own review, they're like uh, I'm one of the one of the few reviews that uh, is listed on Metacritic for the game, and I think I unless things have changed in the months since, I think I'm the top the top rated review there, which I mean, doesn't necessarily um, suggest a hell of a lot, but uh, yeah, I, actually I look at it just now, it's sitting uh, like a 75 from us and that, uh, you know, I, I couldn't agree. Admittedly, you know, the, the current score of the 69 uh, is not far removed from that, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with when I saw where the other reviews were, were landing. I thought, no, there's, there's more to it than this. Yeah, and maybe I, maybe some of those people were the ones that were getting infuriated by the the introduction of the four paddles there and the and some of the challenges with that. And I personally, like, I felt it was challenging, but I didn't find it infuriating like you described. Um, 
I thought it was right on the sweet spot there. So maybe that was the ultimate difference between myself and some of those people. Yeah, it could be. Sure. Yeah, I'm looking at the Metacritic right now too. And then we have these Metacritic user scores. I was just extremely bored the whole time. I played games similar to this, but it was just was it just wasn't. Didn't think it was well made. All right, so we got a two from that guy. But um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I I think uh, I don't know. I, I so I had to learn how to take criticism, especially because a lot of the criticisms were about the story, and that's fine. Um, I just don't have. I have this really thick callus built up around me about my my podcasting and like my media stuff, my criticisms. Uh, reviews i don't have any callus built up about my fictional writing yet so it's it's like a process i need to this is the first time i've ever put fiction into the into the world for like a wide audience so um i know that not everyone's gonna like it i just need to learn how to deal with that better (laughs) yeah and be able to pass through that information and you know work out what's meaningful and what's not what's maybe influenced by some sort of bias and what's not Uh, i'd imagine they'd be interesting challenges for you yeah i i what, what we liked most about doing the game was uh, just that I really do think that there's nothing like it. Um, so we want to continue to to focus on those things that differentiate us. And I have a little bit of bitterness because I, I, I can imagine in my mind's eye if I wasn't involved in the game and we had better marking or whatever. It's like you see all these stories on Kotaku and everything about like this indie game, this indie darling did blah, 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 whatever. And I'm like, that's cool. Like, great. But like we made a new style of game. Like there, there's nothing like this game. I don't know that it's like the most interesting game maybe but i just feel like we didn't get much credit for doing something truly different and that yep. is something that i'm proud of like there's no such thing as a story driven brick breaking game until we made it and until you did it yeah um, so i feel like we it would have been cool to get a little more recognition for that but the ironic thing is that when we make the like herboxy is really great but it's not unique uh, in in most ways, and the JRPG is going to be awesome. I'm so excited about it, but it's not that's not unique. I actually feel like in some ways, Twin Breaker is the most the most unique game. But I guess that that's not always what people are looking for. Clearly, well, yeah, I guess uh, that that can be a thing. But no, I, I'd agree. Uh, really, quite unique. Brought something different to that genre, and I I really enjoyed it as a result. How did your involvement in the game kind of alter, or maybe it didn't uh, impact your perception of? development that you would have had established from many years of talking to developers having been to studios played lots of games did this change anything for you um yeah i don't know i mean in what way specifically are you looking for uh whether whether it's just a mindset or appreciating the the kind of cha- some of the challenges that maybe uh, developers facing that you didn't necessarily realize, or maybe you're at under- underestimated over the journey. Sure. Anything like that? Yeah, I got you. Yeah. I, well, I always knew that making games was hard, at least, especially in being exposed to the industry at IGN, but um, it's so, it's, it is a lot of work. We, we realized that the trophies in the game were broken after we submitted it and had to fix a lot of them on the fly like there's just it just there was like so many problems that were popping up throughout development that you just have to kind of nip in the bud and this is what happens to everyone when they're making games like something's added then something else is broken or whatever it just makes me it just makes me appreciate patience it, make, it makes me appreciate technical skill and all of the things that I don't I just simply don't know how to do and um, yeah where, where Barry's expertise lies right exactly and Barry the game wouldn't have had a story and I'm also important for marketing um, the game. So 
it, 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 I learned, I mean, every, the entire experience being new, me being a virgin basically to this is, uh, it, it taught me a lot of new things. Generally speaking, I, I, I took a lot from the experience that we will move into Herboxia 2 more imminently and, um, and why we want to maybe publish some games and fund some games that we're not making ourselves is just because we can probably teach people some of the things we learned as well, uh, whether it's dealing with the first parties and and getting your games on the stores or dealing with publishers and, and PR. And we used an external PR guy that we really like and had a market. And th- there's uh, nothing that I knew uh, full stop until I did this, basically. Yeah, I'm sure there's going to be a whole lot more that you'll still discover the further you get into this as well. So it'll be it'll be a great journey to follow. Hybroxia two, uh, that's I guess at its core, that's that's Barry's baby. Having worked on the original before you actually got involved in this in the t- uh, in the team and in the company, does does that have any bearing on your level of involvement here? Or now that you're in, um, is the the output the involvement in this game fairly equal to what? your involvement was for Twin Breaker? Yeah, I mean, I would give... I would say the same thing with Twin Breaker and Herboxia too, which is that Barry's doing most of the, the hard labor. Um, yep. And then I kind of come in, help produce it, give notes and all of that kind of stuff, and then ultimately market it and get it out to people. And I'll be writing the story for Herboxia too as well. I haven't actually started writing very much for the game yet because I want it to be done first. It's not going to be as story driven as the first one or as Twin Breaker because the first one really had no story at all. So it's going to be a little bit more vague, which I'm excited about. I think it'll be a different experience for people. Um, But yeah, Hybroxia 2 is I consider that kind of Barry's baby and I don't want to really involve myself too deeply in the choices he makes to make the game because that was not a collaborative the first one was not a collaborative effort, and I know that with all sequels, it's all about kind of getting in what you weren't able to do in the first one. So people are going to find a lot in Hyproxia 2 that they really like that I'm really excited about, um, like stage select screens and nonlinearity and all oh, that. Awesome. Yeah, so it, it's going to be really cool, and I'm going to really try to flesh out the world and, and write something and design something that will bring it more depth and um, that will bring more eyeballs to it, but... Uh, that's really a, a Barry thing, and then, um, and also we have, we're working with artists and stuff like that as well. And then uh, with the JRPG, um, we that's going to be I'm going to be heavily involved, and I am heavily involved in that, and really I'm you know basically directing that game. So, uh, so and it allows you to shift your focus to that more imminently. Exactly, I, I feel like we have to have a division of labor that allows me to. Um, focus on this game because I think that this game will be a breakout for us if we can execute on it uh, well, and I think we can. So, so it's exciting. And then we want to do Twin Breaker two at some point. We're probably going to put that off more than we thought we were going to, which I'm fine with okay. for now. Um, I'm not even sure how I want to end the story. I can't really think straight. So I got a lot. I have a lot to think about and consider. But. Um, but yeah, that's that's basically it. And we so those are the things that we have in um in the hopper. And then we again we still have that brawler, that two D brawler uh that you demo. may or may not come back to. Yeah, I would like to do something with it, but I just don't know that now is the right time. And I think that we've already become so much more sophisticated as a studio that it's almost a little archaic. Like I think Barry would agree. If you look at Perils of Baking and then look at Herboxia, these are like it's like a quantum leap. And when it's you and when jump. you yeah, and when you see when you see what the JRPG looks like you're going to be surprised that we even are making this game. Um, it's, oh, that's... it's, it's beautiful. And so, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So Fantastic prospect. Yeah. I'm, ex- I'm, 
I'm so stoked seeing these characters I made come to life um, in pixel art and in their portraits, you know, their Final Fantasy style portraits in the menus and stuff. It's it's so cool. And um, so it's going to be another quantum leap for us. So that's the other thing is that I think Barry and I talked about this with Perils of Baking is I'm like, we should go back and remake Perils of Baking at some point. And uh, because it's such a funny idea and such a stupid, you know, game in a way. It's, It's ridiculous. You're fighting like cookies and you have a chef hat on and all this. It's really fun. Like we can do, we can do it better. So we're learning as we go and maybe we'll remaster that and re-release it at some point. Um, yeah, that'd, that'd be, that'd be pretty cool. Cause yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of time that's passed and a lot of expertise that's been gained over the journey. So it'd be an interesting prospect to bring that game back with everything that's been acquired since. Yeah. Cause Barry learned the lesson Barry learned and he'll tell you all about it is, uh, that he shouldn't be doing the art. He can't do the art for these games. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. he did everything in, you know, it's very Tom Hap, Axiom Verge style, but um, Barry will be the first to tell you he doesn't have the, the graphical chops that that uh, Tom Hap does. So when he smartened up and got external artists involved, that's when the game started looking better. And so I always imagine what... Because Perils of Baking play is awesome. So I think it would look really, really cool with, you know, better sprites and all that kind of stuff. And... Um, so I think that's on the I think that's on the table. I just don't know what we're gonna if we're ever actually gonna do that. Yeah, still decisions still to be made. Yeah. Is there anything? Are there any further development ambitions that you have? So like maybe other genres, and these are things that are not necessarily on the table yet. But you know, I'd love to make this sort of game as well. Or is the JRPG is that is that the game that you would love to have made? No, the JRPG is really a stepping stone for the game that uh, we ultimately really want to make, which is a turn based strategy role playing game. We just don't. Yeah, okay. We just don't know how to do it yet. We need to learn more. I think that, from what I understand, the reason that there's such a dearth of these games, there's just none of them, is because they're really hard to design. And uh, yeah. you, you get games like Fell Seal, which is awesome, but these games are hard to make. And it's not just about making character classes and stuff. It's about balance and difficulty and exploration and questing and all of that. There's a lot we just don't know about this yet and so that's the game we want to make and actually i've that game is from a writing standpoint more fleshed out than the jrpg is right now we just don't know how to make it so um yeah, okay so that's, that's kind of cool. yeah so i think that and i'm 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 really getting it over my head with the jrpg already because i'm already envisioning it as a trilogy and i don't know if i'm gonna sp- split it up so i gotta i gotta like we have other things to figure out because i really do have this vision for the J- the jrpg that we're making that I would love to say we hit 2022. I would love to have a game out every year, 2022, 2023, 2024 that tell one story. But that seems so ambitious. I don't know. So we got to figure it out Um, and we need to be able to bring revenue in at that time, too, because I have the benefit of running Collins Last Stand and having all that revenue. But this is Barry's full time job. So we have to also keep in mind, are we generating enough, whether latent or active revenue in order to support the studio and without having to bring in external money or anything like that so that's going to require a long-term future right exactly and that's going to require us releasing more games which is why the jrpg is going to be a project that's going on in the background when we release abroxia 2 when we release um the game we're going to probably publish and when we release even twin breaker 2 i i still think that the jrpg will be in development that whole time because we need to support the studio so this this game that you're looking to potentially publish how, how did that kind of come about and uh you know how did that like what did that uh, mean to you when when a game like that kind of pops up out of, presumably out of nowhere um, maybe you had a relationship with the person already uh how did how did that all come about 
Yeah, it was actually a fan of mine who was is working on this, um, basically a tabletop game, and okay, he was talking about how like putting him in touch with people that can digitize it and help him kind of maybe make console versions of this game. And I'm like, I, I feel like maybe we can do this for you. And that's kind of how the conversation began. But I actually owe that guy an email. I'm, I've been pretty remiss with that lately because I've just been so busy. It's not a massive priority for me, but I think it's a great idea to start looking at stuff like that. Like Yacht Club is doing that with that game Cyber Ninja. Um, people think that that's a Yacht Club game, but it's not. They're They're publishing it. They're funding it. Um, yeah, that was a misconception I had at the very beginning there until I realized, hang on, they're still trying to churn out Shovel Knight here. So I doubt it and did a bit more digging and came to yeah make that discovery myself. Right. So they're, it's smart. Like we want to self-publish our own games. That's another thing with the JRPG is we can probably shop it around if we really wanted to and go with like a Devolver, or, you know, some, some smaller publisher. But we really want to control everything. We don't need a publisher and we don't want a publisher. Uh, so that's another major thing uh, that we have to consider as well is just um, the expertise being brought in on the back end from outside forces as opposed to keeping the money um, up front on our various uh, games. And with a game like this that we might publish, we can just own a piece of it. The person can retain the IP and the rights to it. And it just makes us maybe a little bit more late in revenue and maybe allows us to learn a little bit more about the industry as we kind of fill in these this puzzle we're trying to build about our own understanding of how to best do what we're doing so we can learn more about marketing and publishing uh, from this and an external QA and all of that that we might need for our future internal projects so it's an exciting prospect not only for the, the money and the revenue that it can make for our company but because um, I think it'll allow us to open up more opportunities to seek out more games because sometimes I see these games on Kickstarter now, I'm not talking about like the big games like that uh, like that make millions of dollars but I see games on there that are asking for $30,000 or $50,000 and I'm like this game looks fucking awesome. And Yeah, and some of those sadly don't don't get that because right. they just don't get picked up for one reason or another. Right, and, and and it's not like, you know, I don't wipe my ass with that much money. It's a lot of money, but that seems like a small investment for some of these games. They, these people just need to find the right match to see their game to market. And I feel like I see some of those games sometimes and I'm like, we could be that guy. I could just reach out to this guy and be like, you want 25 grand? We'll just give you the 25 grand, you know, and you don't have to kickstart your game. And but but then that creates a whole new then you really need a producer and you need um, you need to trust people, too. I mean, a lot of this stuff just doesn't come out. It just fails. So but I've been keeping an eye on that stuff, too. But I just can't stop expanding the, the pie. It's a it's a it's a bad idea. <laughs> you know, it's 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 reaching critical mass for me. So. Yeah, and it gets a little bit scary because there's so many things that then uh, you're not across as thoroughly as perhaps you'd like to be, and there's a lot of maybe one too many plates being spun. Right, I'm I'm pretty close to that to the edge here, so um, something's got to give, and it'll probably be me just hiring another person to help me with stuff. But um, I but really even that in itself is still a big decision as well. It is. So I mean, I have a lot to think about, but I don't know. That's what 2020 has been all about is just pensiveness because there's nothing else to do. So. <laughs> so yeah, that's, yeah, 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 it's been a hell of a year, indeed. So as we step away a little bit from your professional endeavors, I'd love to pick your brain a little bit about this this dream of yours to to develop or be a part of a rebooted Mega Man or Castlevania. What what did you what did you have in mind, or do you still have in mind uh, for those franchises? If in this hypothetical scenario you are actually able to work on them in the capacity. 
Yeah, Castlevania is a little less fleshed out in my mind because um, my assumption with that is that they would want to do a 3D game, which I think is fine. Lord, the original Lords of Shadow from Mercury scene was good. It was just it needed more. I think that they really lost the plot with the second one. But I would love for to, to convince Konami that they should continue to make Metroidvania style 2D pixel art games. Because I think there's a real market for them, and I don't yeah. know what they're doing. I feel like I would well, be Bloodstained has shown that. Yeah, Bloodstained was awesome, and and that's 2.5D. I feel like if people got the authentic Konami experience from PS1, from Game Boy Advance, from DS, with the pixel art and with all those beautiful animations, I think people would be on board. I really think you could sell one of those like every 18 months and make good money on that. So I don't know why they, you know, Order of Ecclesia, I think was the last one that was 13 years ago. So it's been a long time, and and so I find that absence peculiar and noteworthy, and I would love to do something about that. Um, in the 3D realm for that, though, when I played Bloodborne, that was to me where I was like, this could be a Castlevania game very easily. And Oh, yeah, pellet swap a few things, and all of a sudden it makes a hell of a lot of sense. Right, exactly. It's perfect. So that gothic architecture and the darkness and the, the ambient lighting and... It, it, they really seem like from software making a Castlevania game, I think would be very wise. I don't know that that would ever happen. But uh, as far as Mega Man's concerned, I always thought Capcom Vancouver would have been a good studio to make it. They're the guys that did Dead Rising, but they don't exist anymore. Yeah, they're dead. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like I, I envisioned a, an open world kind of gritty. I hate that word, but gritty game that fuses the um, the plots of Mega Man 1 and Mega Man 2. So yep. uh, Mega Man 1 is about Dr. Light and Dr. Wily making these robots and Wily turns on the light and re- reprograms them. And that's Fireman and Gutsman and all those guys. And then Mega Man 2 is when Wily creates his own robots. And that's like Quick Man and Metal Man and all that. So I envision just this city. I think they call it Megalopolis in uh, Mega Man. So just an, a, a metropolis of some sort. And you have these eight rogue robots that no one really understands why they have gone crazy and they're all in these different places. So uh, Woodman is at like the Central Park like place and Flashman's at the TV studio and Metal Man's at like the industrial park and all of that. And you can go to them in any order and there's like side quests and all this. And But you can go to them in any order, get their fight them and get their weapons um, to use on others. And then you discover that the plot is that uh, Wily Light's partner created these robots and has since reprogrammed the robots that were like your brothers, like Fireman and Iceman and all those guys. And so you fight them last. So it's basically like Mega Man 2 and Mega Man 1, but in reverse. Um, and that's how I always envision. Cool. Yeah, that's how I envision the game. I don't know if that's exciting to anyone, but I think that would be a lot of fun. And I just love the idea of the robots occupying different places in the city. Like instead of, ha- you know, because that's what they're basically doing in the games. It's just these 2D stages. But to like go to wood, to like go to the Central Park and see Woodman and have to get to him there or like to have to fight through like a TV studio to get the Flash Man or fight through the industrial park to get the Metal Man to go to the aquarium and fight Bubble Man. It would I, I just love that idea. And I would love to make that happen. That, that would be a thing like where I would drop almost everything to, to write that game if I got like the go ahead from Capcom to do. Yeah, I, I could imagine that. Um, and but the concept, though, sounds really, really cool. Uh, as someone who's I've not played every Mega Man, but I've played a played a fair few. Um, and certainly those early ones, and that that excites me. And I think for years, like through the various podcasts, I've heard you allude to the fact that you'd love to work on those. But I don't think I've, and maybe I've 
just don't recall, but I've, I don't think I've ever heard you talk in depth about what those ideas would be. So uh, that's really fascinating to me. Yeah, well, I'm glad you think so. I, I'm, it's never going to happen for me, but but uh, I would be glad for dream, yeah, I would be glad for someone to take that idea and do something with it. I do feel like we're going to get Mega Man soon. Well, we had, we had Mega Man 11, of course, not too long ago, but which I wasn't crazy about. But I think we're going to get like a triple A Mega Man game. I think that 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 is something they're going to do if they're not already doing it because they're, they're doing the movie. They just did that shitty cartoon on Cartoon Network. So they're trying to mess around with the IP. I just don't think they know quite what to do with it. But um, if anyone from Capcom is listening, I know what to do with it. So reach out to me. And look, Cap- Capcom is on a bit of a roll these days uh, with their various other franchises. So hopefully they can translate that across to Mega Man and uh, give it the love that it deserves. Yeah, they're having a pretty much unprecedented renaissance at that company. So it's, it's cool to watch with Resident Evil and with uh, Monster Hunter. And they're testing the waters with other stuff, too. I mean, Devil May Cry is doing well, and uh, they re-released Animusha, which has been dormant for, what, 14 years? So I yeah. think they... Um I think they're starting to, to feel themselves a little bit, which is nice to see because we were talking about Konami earlier. It was really that one-two punch of Konami and Capcom as a kid. Those were the companies you really could trust. And to see Capcom come back and dominate is... We're halfway there. It's great. Love it. Yeah, exactly. I would rather I would rather see Konami at this point now do something. So we'll keep pulling for them. Fingers crossed. So as we cycle back to you uh, a little bit, is there anyone out there that really inspires you in the work that you do, whether that's in uh, the podcast realm, whether that's in uh, now your experiences in development? Is there anyone there that you kind of have looked at at various points or maybe even continue to look at and try and model your approach or your the way you conduct yourself upon? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big consumer. I'm really not a consumer at all of video game media. I don't listen to any video game podcasts. I don't really watch any video game YouTube channels. I don't really read any criticisms or I read the websites for the news for sacred symbols, but that's about it. Yeah. Um, I find a lot of my inspiration comes from outside and I, I am such a huge fan of, of interviewers and, and intellectuals like um, Brett and Eric Weinstein and Sam Harris and those kind of guys. And I really have learned a lot about how to interview people and how to talk about things from listening to them and bringing that into my own work. So they're huge inspirations for me. And in terms of game development, I mean, I'm really inspired by Ken Levine. I'm really inspired um, by the work that's being done at studios like Machine Games. And I don't know. I mean, there's there's a there's a million different um, different people I can t- point to. Insomniac, my friends over there, Marcus Smith and James Stevenson. And there, there's a lot of people doing a lot of really good work and a lot of people to learn from a lot of veterans, a lot of uh, OG people that have been doing this for a long time. So I just try to, the thing I do is I just try to keep my eyes and ears open and uh, be, not be resistant to taking on board um, different advice and different ways of doing things and kind of breaking the mold in such a way that will allow me to um, create better content or create a better game or whatever. So it's really about just being malleable and open to criticism and open to, uh, open to the, the kind of reshaping of how you approach things and what you do. And that's something that, as I said earlier, I'm still learning to do now on the dev side. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the dev side, you obviously mentioned a few different names there and you would have worked with them in capacities as an outsider looking in, you know, as a, as a media person looking in, or even as a friend looking in, uh, how, how, like, have, do you feel like you're able to talk to those people now that you're on that development side and pick their brain? Is, is, has that been something that you've done? Has it been valuable for you? Yeah, I've done it a little bit. A, a, a really good resource for me has been a good friend of mine, Gio Corsi, who yep. uh, used to work at PlayStation and now is uh, at Ilphonic, the guys that did Predator Hunting Grounds. And so 
um, yeah, I, I've, I've really enjoyed picking his brain and, and, you know, in the past guys like Tom Happ and Dan Edelman and there, there are a lot of, uh, great resources and people to talk to, but I've also just been trying to find my own way. People are busy and I don't want to bother anyone and, you know, it's, it, it's one of I the, I can appreciate that. Yeah. It's like, if I have a big problem, I'll definitely reach out to people, but Barry also has a lot of connections too. So. Um, and he can answer some of those more technical questions that we have with the engine and all of that. So uh, I'm always open to hearing from people. I mean, if people have any advice, if, they, if they're listening to this in a plate twin breaker or Hybroxia or Perils of Baking, I always want to hear from you. Uh, let, let us know what you think. That's awesome to hear. Uh, what have been some of the most valuable lessons you've learned along the way, whether it's uh, related to the development side or also your work in uh, podcasts or media? Has there been anything that's, uh, that you've picked up along the way that you consider really, really important and has kind of helped underpin the way that you approach your work these days? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that that can go on and on and on. I really feel like in, in some way I've just learned to be authentic and try to be true to myself. I think that the reason that my content resonates with people is because I'm just unabashedly me. And I try to just remain that way, even if there are a lot of external forces that try to kind of tear you down or um, try to convince you that you're doing something wrong. I think that if you can just sift through the nonsense and get to the end user, the person that's receiving you and feel and, and get, get what they feel and get what they think. That's really the only valuable feedback at the end of the day that matters as opposed to worrying about all the noise in the ether in between them and me um, where things are a little more hostile. So I try to keep an open mind to that. And I, I really do try to just listen to the audience and not listen to uh, the naysayers and not listen to the people that hate me or the people that gatekeep, but rather just the people that that are that I'm making this for. And that's why we put that message at the beginning of Twin Breaker. Um, thanking, we thank people for buying the game at the beginning of Twin Breaker before the game starts. We wanted to do that because uh, we wouldn't exist without those that put their hard-earned money on the line to support us. And so they're the customer and everything else is kind of just noise that is a distraction. Yeah, and and those people you'd like to think that you can trust them to be like if they do have criticisms, they can be constructive about it. They're not looking to just tear you down or just look for an, an excuse to kind of poke the bear. Uh, they're they're going to be constructive in some way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've I've had weird interactions with some of the fans over things in the past, but for the most part, they they like you, so they want you to do better. So even if they have something, some criticism, like some real criticism, the level, it is constructive and it's useful to hear from them. So that's why. I, I, I like interacting with my fans and the audience a great deal. Uh, what have been the greatest challenges you've faced over the journey in your mind? And have some of those really helped to kind of, well, some of those would have helped to steal you, I have no doubt. But have there been any particular that you really um, have grappled with? Yeah, I think that I've, I've paid a lot of social cost for um, being who I am and uh, being outspoken and, and being true to my own feelings. And I don't think it's a fair social cost. I don't think it's an accurate or commensurate social costs, but it's one I've paid them a lot and, and I've paid it a great deal. And um, yeah, I mean, that's the greatest lesson, I guess, is just I've become more insular and kind of more reclusive and hermitish as I've gotten older, just because along the way, decisions that I've made have done a great deal for my business and my content and my audience, but has have also cost me a lot um, personally. And so... I'm glad I made the decisions that I did, but that was the greatest cost that I bore. But there's a cost along the way. Yeah. 
On the flip side, to be more uh, positive about things, what have been some of the great highlights that you've kind of enjoyed over the journey? Have there been any really, uh, really high peaks there that in particular you look back on really fondly? Yeah, I mean, it's you just... Know, having that bad day and it, it gets you through? Yeah, I guess it's kind of a hodgepodge of things, but just having the opportunity for so long to be exposed to games in a way that most gamers would no more than dream about is pretty cool. You know, I complain a lot about E3 and how much I hate it, but I went to 10 of them. And that's a cool experience for someone in the industry. You know, I, I got to travel the world covering games. I've been to Japan twice. I've been to Europe three times. I've been, you know, I got to just do different things that I would have never dreamed about doing or would have had to pay out of pocket to do and would have been precluded from doing perhaps. And so there's a lot of positivity in that. I've met really great people along the way. There's a lot of awesome people in the gaming industry and a lot of really kind and decent people in the gaming industry um, for all of its warts and all of its psychopaths and the kind of the loud, boisterous minority that seem to dominate dialogue in there somewhere are just a ton of awesome people that I've gotten to shake hands with and meet and talk to and pick their brains about and learn their stories. And it's cool to be a trusted person that people tell things that they probably shouldn't be saying to you and um, learning about things before they're announced and being able to parlay that to the audience and, so there's like there's so much good upside to this journey that I've been on. And even though I'm kind of like in my middle age, like easing into my middle age and have my own companies now and do my own thing and kind of keep to myself. Those are really bright marks in my past that I that I look back on fondly that I, w- I would have never gotten, you know, just even experiencing different cultures. I've realized in talking to people that I know in real life that like I know so many Japanese people. I'm talking to like you guys. I know people down under and I know people in in, yep. in Europe and like I've just met so many people from around the world. I'm friends with people from around the world. I've been around the world. It's like these are things that I just never would have gotten an opportunity to do. And I think that that's a, a great positive thing that has culturally enriched my life and um, given me a great deal to think about and a lot of really good memories. Yeah, and I mean, while, while we're talking about uh, your exposure to people from from down under, I'll have to at some point introduce you to Australian rules football because you've you've spoken, you've got a great love of sport, and I think this is one blind spot that I think I need to introduce you to at some point. Yeah, there's a few sports that I definitely have, you know, that we don't play in America really that I have a blind spot yeah. for. So yeah, like you said, I love sports, so a great great joy of mine. So yeah, I'd love to do that. And it's- it actually seems to have blown up a little bit because of uh, COVID and the impacts of that on sport. Uh, our sport was actually one of the last that was still standing for a little while there. So it actually attracted a few people in the US uh, for a very brief period there before we too were shut down. Um, and it's it's gotten a little bit of legs in the US recently. So it was I think it was even on the, the number one ESPN for a little while there. And I was, I was quite impressed. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'm so, glad to hear that. Um. Last kind of curly one before we deal with social media and uh, Patreon and the like. If there was any one game that you could retroactively add your name into the credits for, whether it's simply your favorite game or maybe a game that did something uh, really ingenious in your eyes that you would have loved to have been responsible for, what would that game be? So you could just retroactively add your name into the credits. Bioshock, I think, would probably be the game for me. I, I If I wrote Bioshock, I'd have the biggest swinging dick Ever. I've said that in the past. Like that, I love Ken Levine. He's a f- personal friend of mine. It's so impressive that um, <laughs> that that game exists at all. It's just it just stands up so well. It's timeless, and I'm so impressed by it. And it is one of those things where you're like, I wish I did this. I wish I thought of this. So that's definitely the answer. It's one of my favorite games. So that's not a huge surprise. But Bioshock is just so impressive and just showed me a totally different world of games 
And um, yeah, so props to that. I can't wait to see what Cloud Chamber is doing with uh, their Bioshock game. I don't know if it's going to be any good, but we'll find out. But yeah, that's the game. Yeah, that, soon enough. Yeah, that's the game that I'm. I, I would say Bioshock. Oh, fantastic choice, and I don't blame you in the slightest for picking that one. Uh, so as we wrap things up, the we'll just we'll kind of address social media and Patreon those sort of things. Colin, if people, I don't think there's too many people out there that aren't familiar with you in some capacity. But if they're not, where would they be best to go to engage with you, learn about you, maybe engage with the Patreon? Yeah, well, the Patreon's Patreon.com/slash Colin's Last Stand and. You can check all that out if you want. But uh, everything we do is free as well, with the exception of Sacred Symbols Plus. So if you just go to iTunes or your podcast service of choice, you can find uh, my PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, and my retro podcast, Knockback. And uh, I'm on Twitter at No Taxation. So those are all the good places to kind of find me. I think you can just go to CollinsLastStand.com and it kind of just directs you to everything as well. So that's kind of an easy landing page. But yeah, that's kind of where I dwell and uh, I'd be glad to hear from people. Love hearing from people. Yeah, um, I mean, it was it was through the Patreon that we ultimately got in contact and were able to put this together, so I'm really appreciative of that fact. And you, as much as you obviously mentioned, you've, you've kind of become a bit more reclusive and a bit more hermited. Uh, you've always been very, very open with those who wish to engage engage with you in an appropriate fashion. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. On Patreon... I try to answer every message. I do answer every DM, every community thread, and every post on every on everything we do. Because um, I, I do Which like... in and of itself must feel like a job sometimes, right? It is. I sit down and do it a couple times a week. It takes time and effort. And I'm probably not... I, with DMs, it's, it's a little more thorough. But I'm probably... You know, I just like to say to people thank you and all that. And thanks for listening and all that. Just show a little bit of appreciation. That goes a long way. And I know that goes along with with the audience. I know the people that I love, when they notice me, I get excited about that. You know, some people don't because I'm like, you know, inter, quote unquote, internet famous in the video game industry. But there are like people that I follow, like the Weinstein brothers or um, like guys that do NFL podcasts and stuff that like are like that to me. And when they notice yeah. me, I, I get excited about that. So like for it me, feels good. Yeah, exactly. So like I, I try to do that for other people as much as I can. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of how I felt approaching this. Uh, as I mentioned before, like having looked back on your work through the IGN days and not followed the podcast and those over the journey, uh, it really inspired a lot of what I've tried to do. There's, uh, there's a few things that kind of fit into the more generic reviews and kind of commentary mold, but stuff like the, uh, this show and some other uh, other bits and pieces that I put out there as well, they're really things that I link a great deal to you and the things that you've created and really kind of engaged that side of my mind in terms of coming to learn more about development and the scene and the industry and i'm incredibly thankful to you for that which makes me even happier that you were able to and willing to uh, give me your time for the show no it's my pleasure man i'm I'm glad to be here thank you for inviting me and uh hearing my stories and i hope everyone uh enjoyed it as well i have no doubt they did colin thank you very very much for coming on board the show and sharing those stories and that journey so far and i think uh everyone listening now probably shares the same sentiment i have which is we're really excited and looking forward to whatever comes next thank you appreciate that uh yeah thank you everyone and uh enjoy the games if you play them appreciate you and listeners as always thank you very very much for listening and i'll see you next time
that concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until our next episode, however, that's been Colin's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.